Okay, so um, I invite you to uh, open your Bibles to today's scripture reading uh, found in the book of James. So when you were there, uh, please be upstanding for the reading of God's word taken from the book of James, chapter 4, and we will be starting at verse 13. Okay, James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This was the reading of God's word. Do you join me in prayer uh, once more? God, uh, we make this our prayer. Uh, we, this is our desire, that you would speak to us, uh, that you would speak life to us, uh, that you would revive us, that you would renew us, that you would refresh us, that you would correct us. Would you teach us uh, obedience this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the most effective ways to teach is by asking questions, probing questions, uh, pointed questions, and rhetorical questions. You know, James, as a wisdom teacher, knows this really, really well. He asks a lot of questions. Uh, here are just some of the questions that we've looked at so far in James. Uh, he asks in chapter 2, 14, can faith without work save? Of course, this was a rhetorical question, right? Because faith, there is no such thing as faith without works. Another question he asks uh, in chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Supposedly, within James's congregation and the church that he was speaking to, uh, there were many people who uh, were professing to be wise. Many people wanted to become teachers. Many people thought they had this knowledge, and they were so smart, so mature. And James says, who's smart? Who is wise? Let him show by his gentleness, by his reasonableness. Let him show not by how well he can argue, but by how gentle and reasonable he is. Another question James asks, what causes quarrels and fights among you? People were fighting in the church, and he says, what is causing all of this? And then he, and he says, is it not the passions that are within you? Is it, is it not the greed, the anger, the arrogance that's within you that's causing all of these fights? Pointed questions. He also asks, in chapter 4, verse 12, we saw two weeks ago, who are you to judge your neighbor? Ah, oh, such a difficult question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? And then today, in, in, in the passage that we've read just now, he asks this question, what is your life? What is your life? Friends, how would you answer this question this morning? What is your life? 
Well, I think there are two extreme answers to this question, and depending on who you are and what circumstance you find yourself in this morning, you will say you're somewhere along the spectrum of these two extremes. Let me explain. The first extreme is this. It's the nihilistic view. It's the view that says, what is life? Life is nothing. Life is meaningless. Nothing matters. Everything is relative. My life has no real value. I have no significance. I can make no difference either for good or for bad. You know, two authors come to mind who share this nihilistic view. The first is the author of Ecclesiastes. This is how he begins his work. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Uh, Just as a side note, uh, it was this verse that led me to Christ. Vanity of vanities, everything is in vain. Um, And if you look at the Bible that's actually behind the pulpit, it's opened up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, so that every week when I come up to preach, I can see that and be reminded of how I've come to faith in Christ. Um, You know, praise team, please don't, play a joke and flip the pages. Uh, Unsu, I'm watching you. Um, but vanity of vanities, this is what he says. Uh, there is no remembrance of former things. So people don't remember the things that had passed. Nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. It's basically saying no one's going to remember you. No one's going to remember the work that you've done. You're going to be forgotten. And then he says in chapter 2, I consider... All that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was a vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The author is basically saying, what's the point of all this? Nothing. Life is vain. You know, interestingly, Ecclesiastes was written uh, by a Solomonic figure. Someone who lived his entire life as king. Enjoying riches, power, and pleasure. But even despite all of that, he says, this is meaningless. The second author that comes to mind is Shakespeare in the play Macbeth. This is what uh, Shakespeare writes uh, through the mouth of Macbeth in uh, Act 5, the final act. He says this, Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Macbeth utters these words towards the end of the play as his life is falling apart. His wife had just died, and his past sins are all catching up to him at this point. His life is unraveling, and at that moment he confesses, life is a tale told by an idiot, signifying nothing. So you have on one hand Solomon, a king who experienced peace and prosperity, who went to the mountaintop, who stayed there. And then you have another king, Macbeth, whose life was haunted by his sin, who was blinded by his ambition, who was paranoid, schizophrenia, and experienced the destruction of his life. And both, when you, when you ask them the question, what is life, they give the same answer. Life is meaningless. That's the nihilistic view. And I don't think this feeling is actually foreign to many of us here this morning. We've all experienced this feeling from time to time, haven't we? That life seems meaningless. Life seems 
rudderless. Whether it's after working so hard to reach your goals, only to realize, man, that was for nothing. Or seeing your life fall apart. Nothing nothing seems to go your way. You feel as though you're being left behind. The world, your friends, your children, they've all left you behind. And you wonder, what was it all for? You give your heart, your time, your energy to something. And in the end, you realize, oh no, it was for nothing. Now just a plug for Thursday basketball. Uh, We restarted basketball for the men um, and the women who want to come out and play. Uh, but sometimes you work really hard playing basketball, right? You, you play defense, you grab that rebound, and then you throw the perfect outlet pass, and the person catches it, runs, and he misses the layup. And you think, all oh, for nothing. <laughs> all for nothing. I'm actually in the shoes of the person missing the layup, but all for nothing. We've experienced that before. Now, that's one side of the spectrum. What is life? Life is meaningless. The other side is what? The other side is this overly romanticized, idealized view of life that answers, what is life? Life is everything. Life is an opportunity. Life is a gift. Life is this chance to make a difference and to change the world at every step of the way, all while while enjoying the pleasures of this world and being pain-free. You see the sentiment expressed often in life coaches. People saying you have to reach your potential. You find it in CEOs of companies purporting to change the world with their product or their service. You hear it at graduation speeches. You can do it. You can make a change. Be the best you. Or you see it in people just simply seeking pleasure and purpose in every single experience. I'm not sure if you noticed, but for the past few decades, there has been a lot of artificial significance what I call fake meaning, being pumped into very ordinary and mundane things. Things like work, hobbies, even food. You know, today, work is no longer considered labor as a way to simply feed your family and to survive. But work now has to be a calling. You have to make an impact in this world. Some companies even claim to be a family. You see it in exercising, in hobbies. Those of you who own a Peloton, who are working, you know, exercising on a Peloton, they say a Peloton isn't just about exercising. It's about a community. It's about a lifestyle. And food, food is no longer just about sustenance. But food has to be this life-changing experience. It has to be aesthetically pleasing, and it has to be physically satiating. You know, as a side note, I think a lot of this is due to the absence of religion and purpose in this world. But people who view life in this way as overly optimistic, as people who expect everything to have ultimate significance, who view everything to be life-altering, life-changing, they view life as this amazing thing filled with potential at every step of the way, and they see death as an anomaly and suffering as a glitch. The expectation that these people have is that everyone is going to experience wealth, success, and happiness. That people are entitled to these things. Uh, This is exemplified um, in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. There's this man, uh, he's rich, he's doing well, and he runs out of space to put his money. And so he thinks, you know what? 
I'm just going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build larger ones. And he says this in Luke 12, 19, as he goes to sleep. He says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He sees life with these rose-tinted lens. Everything is amazing. Everything is great. I'm entitled to these things. Life is good. Two extremes. Life is nothing. Life is everything. Life is utterly meaningless. Life is overly significant. Friends, where do you fall on this spectrum this morning? More importantly, where does James fall? You know, once again, James is this amazing teacher. He's so wise. And what we find in today's passage, he's addressing both extremes and he's exposing their fallacies while offering up a proper gospel grounded view on life. So what is life? Well, James addresses first the overly optimistic, the wishful thinker, those who think that they are entitled to success and only good things in life. James says, what is life? Verse 14, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James uses a lot of visual metaphors, and I think the use of mist is extremely helpful. When mist or vapor is present, you can see it clearly with your eyes. You don't need special glasses. You don't need this spiritual intuition. You don't need knowledge. It's evident. When you see mist, it's evident. But as seconds go by, that visible mist continues to evaporate until it just disappears. And once it disappears, it's remembered no longer. It leaves no footprint. It has no real impact. Friends, what comes to mind when you hear the word mist? When I think about this word, when I think about mist or vapor, um, frankly, nature doesn't come to mind. I don't think about the morning dew in a valley. Um, I think about a rice cooker. (laughs) You know, rice cookers are these pressured, sealed uh, cooking devices. It cooks rice, and right before the rice is done, the cooker releases the steam. And you see the mist going up into the air. It's evident, but it lasts only for seconds. That's the best part, right? Where you smell the fresh rice. And it's a sign that the rice is ready. I recall when I was young, uh, I would put my hand, or sometimes even my face, just close enough to feel the steam without being burnt. (laughs) Please tell me I wasn't the only one who did that. James is saying, you are a mist. He's not denying our existence. He's not saying we're all computer programs living in a fantasy world. No, our lives are real. It's evident. it's visible, but James says our lives are temporary. It's short, it's brief, and it's fleeting. Notice, I want you to see, look, notice that James doesn't say life is a mist. He doesn't speak generally. He doesn't say, hey, you know, all of life is just a mist. And he doesn't say your life is a mist. No. He plainly says, you are a mist on the off chance that you think you can avoid the brevity and the fleeting nature of life by your gifts, your knowledge, your talents, and your circumstances. He says, you are a mist. 
Friends, have you ever described yourself in this manner? Have you ever seen yourself as vapor? Do you consider your life to be exactly that? A mist. Here today, go. Gone seconds later. I'm not sure how often you see mist or vapor in nature, but the next time you're cooking rice in your homes and the steam comes out, ask yourself, is that me? Is that my life? You know, I think it's important we understand what prompts James to really make this statement. If you look in verse 13, there's this conversational partner, and this this person is supposed to represent us. But verse 13 says this. There's this person that says, you know what? Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. We'll spend the year there, and we'll trade, and we will make a profit. Now, on the surface, I think this seems like a very harmless statement. In fact, this person is planning. His life is well thought out. He or she seems to be a go-getter. They are the ambitious type. Is there anything wrong with this idea? You know, while on the surface, it may seem like a very ordinary statement, when examined closely, this statement reveals a prideful and arrogant heart. If you look at this statement, there are absolutely no rooms. There's no room for contingencies. There's no expectation that things will not go as planned. The person doesn't take into consideration the tenuous nature of life. Further, there's this pretense that making a profit is a certain outcome. We've met those people before. We've been in those situations before. Oh, I know how to make a profit. Oh, I know how to do business. This person is one who is confident that his business will be profitable. He thinks he has his life all figured out and all under control. But more importantly, undergirding this statement, there is absolutely no acknowledgement of God. There is no reliance Upon him. God has been eliminated from the equation entirely, and the person that is speaking is playing God in his own story. See, that is the issue with verse 13. When the person is planning, when the person is thinking, when the person believes he has his or her life all figured out, and they will be profitable, all with the absence of God. There's a well-known thinker by the name of Parker Palmer, and he coined the term functional atheism. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this before. But functional atheism is that whatever you believe, whatever your religious beliefs are, you live as though the ultimate responsibility for everything rests with you. Christians who believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God, who believe that God is also imminent and near to us, who believe that God is for us and He's good, and who believe that God is leading us and guiding us, we live and make decisions as though God is not real. And this is James's point. Are you a functional Christian or are you a functional atheist? Does your belief in God order the way that you live? Does it have the slightest impact on your schedule? Does it change or alter your decisions? Does it change your thoughts? Does it have an impact on your finances, your relationships, the words that you use, your view of life? How does your 
belief in God impact and change the way you live your life? See, James is not saying that we shouldn't plan, that we shouldn't have our lives figured out. He's not saying that. I know we have a lot of type A's in our church. And I know that the unplanned life scares us to death. But that is not James's point. What he's actually saying is, okay, in all of your plans, in all of your thoughts, in your life that has been plotted out so well, where is God there? Where is God in your confident disposition that you will succeed in life? And to that, James says, you are a mist. You know, if you read closely um, the statement back in verse 13, you know, the person's foolishness actually rises to the surface. The more and more I read this, when I first read this, uh, the cursory reading was that, oh, this person is, he's planning. He's a go-getter. He's extremely ambitious. He's well thought out. But the more and more I read uh, this person's thoughts, the more and more the person's foolishness actually came to the surface. If you go back to verse 13, this person actually isn't well-planned. He says, today or tomorrow, I'll do this. So there's this indefinite time. And then he says, well, I'll go to this city or that city. There's an indefinite location. This person is actually filled with so much pride. He thinks, I can go here today or tomorrow. I can go to this town or that town. And no matter what I do, you know what? I will be successful. I will make a profit. I have the Midas touch. If I work hard, if I apply my skills, my intellect, I can be successful. doesn't matter. You know, this person resonates with me a lot. Someone who prides himself in planning. One who thinks he has his life well planned out, but the reality is I don't. The reality is you don't. The only thing that we actually plan out well is our focus on success. That's the only thing we really do well at planning out. We don't think about how to get there. We don't think about the contingencies that might happen, the tenuous nature of life. We just think, you know what? We plan out success. We're really, really good at planning out success. But timeline, well, maybe five years, maybe ten years, maybe this city, maybe that city. We are just like this individual. Our plans are only focused on the success that we are looking to enjoy. The how to get there? We can map it out, we can talk about it, but they are as opaque and as blurry as this person is in James. And to that, James says, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Verse 16. Friends, can we admit it this morning? Can we confess that this morning? That we are very prideful people. We are prideful, boastful, arrogant people. When the reality is, nothing is in our control. Not our first breath, not our last breath, not the success or the failure that we enjoy. We don't choose our parents, our ethnicities, our DNA, our personality, our children, the weather. We can't even control the morning traffic. Nothing is really in our control. We are utterly, utterly dependent creatures. No one here is a self-made man or woman. We are all at the mercy of God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is our confession. We are utterly dependent creatures. 
And everything we have is from Him. And who we are, it is by the grace of God. Um, you know, I had uh, plans on speaking on both um, both extremes, the overly optimistic side and um, and the overly pessimistic person. But uh, I think uh, because seeing that we're short on time, I'm going to have to leave the second part for next week. Um, we'll return to that um, next week. I, I know that all of you here have plans, and so I don't want my unpreparedness to get in the way of your plans. Uh, next week, um, we'll have to talk about how James combats uh, nihilism and how James breathes eternal significance into our brief, brief lives. But let me just uh, speak now on how uh, the gospel addresses our overly optimistic view of life. Uh, friends, uh, the gospel uh, doesn't call us to be overly optimistic or overly positive. In fact, the gospel runs very contrary to this message that we should expect success and longevity in life because we are all entitled to it. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, replaces false positivity with redemptive reality. See, the good news of Jesus is that while in this world we live in a broken and fallen world, The gospel gives us the reality that while you and I have utterly no control over our lives, that while you and I are so sinful beyond self-repair, while this is the reality the gospel gives us, it also tells us that the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection makes everything new again. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is that Jesus takes control of our lives. He seizes control of our lives from our former bondage to sin and death, and he gives us the freedom to live not positively, but to live redemptively for him. While you and I will continue to live in this life marred with sin, with death, with disappointment, The gospel gives us the assurance that what happens on this side of life, this side of the world, does not have the final say. The gospel is the good news that whatever success or failures that you are enduring or enjoying, those things do not have the final say, and they do not define who you ultimately are. C.S. Lewis, in uh, The Voyager of the Downtreader, he expresses this vividly. Um, There's these two, uh, the protagonists, uh, Eustace and Lucy, they travel to a foreign land. And there they meet this wise old man named Ramadu. And Eustace asks Ramadu, who are you? And Ramadu says, quote, I am a star at rest. Now, Eustace replies by saying, you're a star? Well, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. But Ramadu responds and says this, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what a star is made of. Do you get that? Ramadu, this wise man, is saying what? That while you may be made up of your life's decisions, 
while your life may be made up of the success and the failures of, that you've made and your, and your parents, while you may be the sum of all the regret, the joy, and the success and the failures that you've experienced and endured, whether it's health or sickness, while you may be made up of all of these things, Ramadan is saying your life is not defined by that. That is not what you are. Your life is not defined by your plans, your prosperity, or your misfirings. But you are defined by your union with Christ. Friends, the gospel isn't about optimism, but it is about hope. Hope. Think about Jesus and the life that he lived. Jesus, the Son of God, who enjoyed eternal bliss in the triune God, the one who can actually say like this man, today or tomorrow I will go here or there and I will be successful. I will be good and profitable at everything that I do. Jesus is the only one who can actually say that with confidence. But he decides to take on flesh. He becomes mortal and he experiences in his flesh every weakness of man. Jesus was born a refugee. He lived a life of mediocrity and obscurity. Jesus was rejected by society's elites, and he died at the ripe age of 33. Many of us here in this room have already outlived Jesus. Many, almost twofold. And if I lived during Jesus' time, I thought, you know what? Jesus would actually call me young. Which in the Korean means older brother. Like, I'm older than Jesus. I've lived longer than him. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, lived a life forfeiting all control and trusting his entire existence to the plans and the hands of the Father. Why? So that you and I, those who are living in this sin-fallen, broken world, can live a life of trust, who have the promise of God's favor and his eternal life. Friends, the gospel acknowledges our brokenness. We ought not to live with this overly optimistic view of life that's separated or detached from reality. No, the gospel gives us a redemptive reality that while we are sinners, broken beyond self-repair, Christ in his work makes all things new again. And we can, we must, have hope. Let me just uh, give two or three practical points of application. Um, as just stated, I think number one, the Christian, we have to be very, very cautious of having false hope, of being overly optimistic, having this false positivity. Christians are often uh, portrayed uh, in movies or on, in the media as being either puritanical, as being overzealous or being overly optimistic. And we ought to be careful not to be overly, overly optimistic. This is what Jeremiah 23 says. He says this, uh, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hope. They say continually, It shall be well with you, and no disaster should come upon you. Jeremiah is talking about false prophets who are 
ultimately, who are basically preaching a prosperity gospel, saying, if you believe in God, if you come to church, if you do good, if you live your life well, God will ultimately bless you. God has created you in this world so that you can maximize your potential so you can live your best life now. And that is something that we must avoid at all costs. Because if we start to believe that, when things go awry, we start to blame God, wondering, what did I do wrong? What did you do wrong? The second thing, second point of uh, practical application is just to simply remember, remember Christ. As our sister Judy has shared during the announcements, that too often we forget. Too often we forget. And the most or one of the most common commands that we find in the Bible is to remember, remember. James says this in chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. And so if you enjoy any success, any prosperity, if there's any goodness in your life, James is saying, hey, remember God. Remember, this is from God. But he also says in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, when you meet trials of various kinds, when things don't go go your way, when you're suffering, when things go awry, things don't go according to plan, know that these things, the testing of your faith, produces steadfastness. And James is saying, you know what? The good and the bad, they are both from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift is from God, and every trial that you meet is for the testing of your faith. Your God, he is a good God who loves you in his Son, And you can trust him at every turn of life. And finally, the the final point of application, if, if we can draw anything from this. If we don't have an overly optimistic view of life, but if we have a redemptive reality of life, knowing that, yes, while this world is sinful beyond repair, but Christ has redeemed it. It gives us, in fact, a boldness and a confidence. Not a hubris and an arrogance, but it gives us a boldness and a confidence as sons of God, as daughters of God, to live before Him and to trust in Him for all things. Friends, what is your life? For those of you who are overly optimistic, who think that you're entitled to all the goodness that life has to give, who see every meal or every experience, or every turn of life as something that has to be awesome or amazing. Please do not be filled with vain hope. But know that Christ, in his work, has redeemed all of the brokenness that you and I endure, and he has made it new. For the cynic, the skeptic, those who say life is nothing, you have to come back next week. Would you join me in prayer at this time? Uh, What is life? What is your life? What are you? Who are you? Well, James says first, you're missed. Here today, gone tomorrow. Does that change or affect the way you live? For the hubris, the arrogant, the prideful who are planning their lives, thinking, you know what? Today, tomorrow, this city, that city, I'm going to make a profit. I'm going to be amazing. I'm going to have all of this success. James is saying, you have absolutely no control. Where is God? Where is your acknowledgement and trust in God? And through the gospel, we are reminded that ultimately who we are, who we are is not defined by our success or failures. 
our misfirings or our prosperity. But it's defined by who we are in Christ, our union with him. Yes, you may be the sum of all the failures, the success, the regrets, and the blessings of your life and your parents, your family, your siblings, your friends. But that is not what you are. That is not who you are. Would you take this gospel truth this morning? And would you live in this redemptive reality that in Christ God has made everything new? Let's take a few moments to reflect and pray. Let's pray.